Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm Jeannie Hedden Gallagher. This week, we're talking to researchers who have found new ways of looking at things that have been around for a long time, opening up opportunities to make them work better. For starters, I recently spoke with Thomas Schofi. He's an assistant professor in the Lally School of Management here at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and an authority on using alternative data to gain insight on the stock market. Lately, he's been studying how gender inequities in the corporate world manifest in earnings conference calls. It's an idea that came from an unexpected source. So this was inspired by the Supreme Court. And they have, people look at the audio and the transcripts from Supreme Court discussions, and what they've actually found is that the female justices are interrupted more by their male counterparts. And so we, we saw this example and thought, well, does it apply to a corporate disclosure world? And we started to look at earnings conference calls because they are a public forum where you can observe managers, you can observe analysts, and you can get their names so you can approximate their genders using algorithms that are, are well known. So we start looking at a number of things that are related to both analysts and management. And from the analyst side, the first natural question is, do female analysts appear on these conference calls more or less frequently than male analysts? And there's a competition between sell-side analysts to appear on these calls because they, they get positive reputation from, from management. They, they want to be seen. And so it's, it's an advantage for um, analysts to get on these calls and controlling for a number of other factors. What we actually see is that female analyst participation on these calls is lower. So it's indicative um, of some type of either discrimination or some type of um, view among female analysts that perhaps they, they shouldn't compete in this boys world environment. And the field is dominated both the management side and the analyst side by males. So that's, that's the first interesting thing um, that we came across. But then we started to dive deeper. We started to dive into what are the managers and what are the analysts saying? And does it differ across gender? And we, we really find some interesting results um, in that area. Uh, for one, the, the female analysts are less positive. They're, they're not exhibiting as much exuberance about the company. They are more tempered and more rational in their expectations. They are less likely to ask the first question on a conference call, which is deemed to be prestigious, uh, less likely to be able to ask a follow-up question on a conference call, and they speak less on a conference call. What about from the management side? What does your research show there? Uh, we look at management about how, how they um, interact with analysts. So, is, is, a, is a female executive more likely to interrupt a male executive or vice versa? Is an analyst more likely to interrupt an executive? And so what we, what we see is that female um, analysts are, are, are less likely to um, interrupt. Male analysts are more likely to interrupt. And what we see kind of like an in-gender favoritism where males treat males better and females treat females better. And when we look at the, the hierarchy, and we think about the, the glass ceiling and the, in the, the lower frequency of females in, in the C-suite. We actually see 
um, a, a press up against female executives. So if you are a female executive in a higher position than a male executive, you're more likely to be interrupted. You're more likely to be challenged by a male subordinate subordinate than a male um, senior would be interrupted by a male subordinate. So all these dynamics in, in, a, in a public forum where management is interacting with each other, analysts are interacting with management, we get some insight into how Wall Street treats female analysts from the analyst side and how corporate America treats female CEOs and female CFOs. And, and the, the bottom line is they treat them differently and they treat them in a way that is suggestive of, of discrimination. Now, we can't, we can't say that with complete certainty, but the results um, are indicative that that's, going to ha that that's what's happening. And, and the final thing that we look at is um, the market reaction to the content on these conference calls. So when, when analysts are more positive on a call, they exhibit more, more positive words and negative words, we expect to see a stronger reaction from the marketplace. And we do, but we see that the reaction to female analysts is about 40% the reaction of male analysts. So there's something about the marketplace that just doesn't feel that female analysts are as important in what they say about the firm based on how the, 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 the marketplace reacts to the firm stock around these very informative events of earnings calls. It seems to me that these earnings conference calls are an untapped resource of important information. I do a lot of research on earnings conference calls and more general conference calls because it's just a rich environment to observe human behavior, incentives, gender effects, um, disclosure effects that affect capital markets. It, and it's not your typical data. It's very raw and you need to extract pieces of useful information. So gender is one component that we extract that we think reveals incredible things about how people interact. And then we extend that across a variety of dimensions that are typically studied in earnings conference calls. Practitioners, investors, analysts are always looking for an advantage. And the biggest advantage that we see today is through alternative data. So when we think about traditional data, that's considered to be prices, it's considered to be uh, fundamental information, and now that's not good enough because everyone has that data. So now we're talking about unstructured data, conference calls, voices in um, conference calls and other events. Um, they're, they're, there's uh, geo-targeted information that comes from cell phones. There is satellite imagery that's used to estimate how much um, retail activity is occurring in a place like Lowe's or Home Depot. So, so conference calls rep represent one area of unstructured information that we can extract these signals from and potentially make better investments and better choices in capital markets. But you also have some brand new research using a different kind of call. Can you explain? Yeah, so, so when, we, when we analyze conference calls in the accounting and finance world, almost all of the studies are on earnings conference calls. And it's because they're the most common. Companies have quarters, they have um, six month periods, they report their sales, they report their earnings, analysts participate, management talks about things. Sure. My, my research has extended that into a couple of areas, but one of the, the um, types of calls that we think is absolutely crucial is the use of what's called special conference calls. So these are calls that firms have that are somewhat unexpected to the marketplace to discuss relevant results, relevant information. So 
we've seen these events, and they happen more frequently than you think. They've increased in frequency by over 125%. Because when when companies are seeing this volatility with, with the huge decline in stock prices that were associated with the pandemic and the fear of economic shutdown, they don't want to wait until their earnings conference calls. And they can issue a press release, sure, but they want the analysts and other investors to actually be able to interact with them. So they hold these special calls. And we saw this all of the time during the beginning of the pandemic in March and April. And I was looking at the content of the conference calls and actually tracking how many times we saw mentions of the coronavirus. And we saw an increase and increase and increase before the market even declined. There was concern about this even before the market reacted. So it was a very much a predictive measure. And this goes back to the data point where people are looking for these these textual this textual information to be able to extract signals to predict what's happening in the marketplace. Now, the other thing that these special calls are frequently used for are by pharmaceutical companies. So pharmaceutical companies hold these special calls to discuss the results of clinical trials. And this is a, a very important event for pharmaceutical companies, especially the smaller ones that are dependent on the development of one or two drugs. So they talk about the success of these these clinical trials, the market reacts very positively, vice versa. But it's really interesting because we, we are completely immersed by all of this news information about the vaccine for the coronavirus, Pfizer's vaccine, Moderna's vaccine. And the, the news hit all of the media outlets about the success of Pfizer's vaccine, I think about a month, maybe a month and a half after Pfizer held a special call discussing the efficacy of the vaccine and showing all these positive things about it. So I think it's remarkable that these calls, which are, are designed for so many different things, but are, have been historically used for pharmaceutical results, are, are really revealing something special to investors before everyone real, realizes. And I think this is a very positive trend because it suggests that companies are willing to be more transparent and deliver timely information to investors. And again, goes back to the point, it's more important for investors to be able to digest this information very fast from a quantitative standpoint. And from if you're not a quantitative investor, to at least be able to pay attention to them to make decisions because critical information is being released to the marketplace. You said something interesting earlier about, uh, you know, people are looking for an advantage. Is the advantage in the current market information or knowledge? The term is that data is the new oil, right? It fuels our economy. And it's, it's completely true. But it's not enough to just say, I know how to work with this data that everyone else has to, has access to. It is more important to be able to generate proprietary data. We we live in a unstructured world, or at least we have cons- uh, historically. So there's there's data being produced everywhere in terms of every economic transaction, in terms of every um, personal choice that we make in terms of consuming goods or services, and it's being applied in not just the financial world, but in marketing, in sales, in in accounting too. And these things are incredibly important for anyone that's moving forward with a new career because it not only do you need to have the data um, processing skills, which would include programming languages like Perl or R, and, and we teach all of those things at RPI, but also to have the intuition and the economic knowledge to make sense of the data. 
You can apply artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms to data, and it can lead to some prediction, but the prediction may not make sense in economic terms. I talk about this all the time in my, in my classes about the perils of data mining and just throwing algorithms at data as opposed to being able to say, what am I looking for? And does this make sense based on what I see in the results of the data? So um, being able to produce tools that generate new forms of data from unstructured sources is incredibly valuable. And then being able to know what to do with that data for some type of economic purpose is the final step. If you can do the, the recognize the importance be able to process it and be able to do something intelligent with it. That is the full suite of skills that people need, both in academia and in the in industry. Next, we'll hear from a researcher who is a leader in the effort to build a better battery. He spoke with my colleague, Tori Wells. I had an opportunity recently to speak with Nikhil Karatkar, an endowed chair professor of mechanical engineering at Rensselaer. He is an expert in developing improved batteries and energy storage, which of course is a need that will only continue to grow in the coming years. Professor Karatkar, I'd like to start by talking about how you got involved in this area of research. Is this where you started out in your career or is this something that you moved into over the course of your work? Yeah, so I started in RPI in 2001. Uh, so from 2001 to 2010, I was doing a lot of work on uh, manufacturing various types of nanomaterials. Um, this included carbon nanotubes, graphene, um, and so on. Uh, so I started thinking about applications of these nanomaterials. And I realized that, you know, in batteries, most, uh, most of the processes that take place inside the battery uh, take place at very small scales. You know, you're talking of ions, right, that are moving back and forth. Um, and I realized that nanomaterials might uh, be able to help a lot in terms of making batteries work better. And that's why I started getting into batteries around 2010, uh, looking for an application of all the different types of nanomaterials that I was making. I, I saw energy storage as uh, like a very important area because um, if you think about the future of humankind, um, you know, we are going to need energy storage very badly because um, right from portable electronics, laptops, cell phones, all the way up to, for example, car batteries, um, as well as grid storage, you're going to need uh, bigger, better, more efficient, safer batteries. Um, and so, I mean, I knew that, that this is a very important area of research. Um, and I felt that nanomaterials could have a real impact. And so... It seemed like a perfect fit. Right now, the most dominant battery on the market is a lithium-ion battery. And my goal always was to make it better, greener, safer, and cheaper. I work systematically on each and every component inside the battery. So you have, you have an anode, you have a cathode, you have a liquid electrolyte. Uh, these are the three main parts inside the battery. So I worked on the anode side first, and I figured out a way by which... Uh, we could replace the classical graphite-based anode, which is not as efficient as we would like it to be. I was able to replace it with lithium metal, and uh, that allowed us to create batteries that are very energy-dense, uh, both in terms of volume and in terms of weight, um, and are also capable of fast charging. Um, and so I was able to solve uh, you know, a, a very long-standing pro problem with the use of lithium metal, 
which is that you form dendrites. And I was able to solve that dendrite problem uh, by taking advantage of battery self heat. So I was able to create heat in the battery in a very well controlled manner. And uh, that heat was used to heal dendrites as they form. And uh, by doing that, I was able to deploy lithium metal in a lithium ion battery, which to, to this point had not been successful. Um, and then the next, uh, I would say, major breakthrough we made was on the cathode side, which was, um, you know, making greener cathodes. So I worked a lot on the anode and the cathode side first, um, and that was driven by this need to have better batteries and cheaper batteries and greener batteries. Recently, I have uh, been looking at the liquid electrolyte and looking at ways to replace the traditional flammable electrolyte with an aqueous electrolyte. So you're working in all these different areas of research, and, and I'm curious, is there a part of the research that's most exciting for you? Is it perhaps when you're in the lab and you're watching something as it's working? Or do you like looking at the data and understanding why it's working? Or is it maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, I think the most exciting thing is, um, you know, when you get something that you know is unexpected and uh, something that could change the battery field. You know, like we did some work where we showed that, uh, you know, lithium metal could be used in a battery. And, you know, until now, the, the, the feeling in the battery field is that, you know, there's no way you can use lithium metal because it's highly unsafe. Um, and we found that there is actually a way to make it safe. Now, this was not expected. Um, but when we found this out, um, you know, it was it was most exciting to me because uh, it's an entirely new, different way of thinking, right? So if you want to change the world, um, you have to, um, you know, not accept what you're told and, and you know, uh, um, actually verify that is there, a, is, is there a way to actually change that? And so when you find something that's very exciting that you don't expect, um, then you first want to understand, you know, what's going on, why is this happening? Um, and you want to fully understand the effect and you want to fully optimize it and then use it, right? So that part uh, is the most exciting, you know. Uh, also, it's exciting when you plan for something and it actually works out, right? So if you if you kind of think that, you know, this concept might work and it actually does work, uh, then that also, um, you know, makes me happy. You've talked here about the importance of making batteries better, greener, safer, and cheaper. Is there an area you're most interested in or you think has the greatest potential? Now, if you think about how the battery market is going to expand in the future, um, it's primarily going to be driven by not the laptop cell phone market. I think that market has kind of saturated now. So the future growth of batteries is going to be driven by cars mm -hmm. and it's going to be driven by the fact that, you know, once we, we get our energy from uh, wind and solar, uh, you know, we have to be able to save this energy uh, locally. Uh, so we're going to have this micro grid in the future, the smart grid, right? And uh, that smart grid is going to require batteries to, to like store that energy. Um, and, and so it's, it's, I would say it's grid storage and, and transportation that's going to drive the future. So the most important uh, thing in, in both transportation and grid is cost, right? So the cost of a lithium-ion battery right now is too expensive. It has to come down. Uh, and at the same time, at the same time, the safety is, is again, extremely important. You know, if, if these batteries are unsafe and they are being deployed on a massive scale across the globe, and if they're unsafe, that's a problem. So cost safety, um, becoming, are becoming, um, equally important, if not more important than 
uh, just being able to store a lot of energy in a small space or a small uh, mass. And when you're thinking about that future of energy storage, what do you see for your lab in the next five to 10 years, maybe? Or what do you hope? So um, I really hope that, um, you know, we can um, make a lot of progress with what we've done so far in terms of moving something to market, um, especially, you know, starting manufacturing um, uh, and, and, you know, maybe starting a company or working with, 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 working with an existing company uh, to move a product to market. So that's one thing very important. And that would be in the area of lithium-ion batteries, the work we've already done with improved anodes and improved cathodes, right? As well as the work we've done on aqueous batteries. We're hoping something along this line can, can, can move to market. Um, but also uh, from a research perspective, as I said, uh, I really want to do something important in the area of beyond lithium. Because I think, you know, depending entirely on lithium for our future needs is, I think, very risky. Uh, so I think some really solid alternative to lithium has to emerge in the next five or 10 years. And um, it could either be, uh, you know, something that has like calcium, magnesium, zinc, aluminum, chromium. It's not clear which one is going to win out at this stage. Um, but uh, but I think there's a, there's a lot of work that needs to go into this. So I, I'm really hoping in five or 10 years, I can present an alternative to lithium that works really well. Right? Um, and then also I'm looking at um, you know, batteries that are fundamentally different from what we have today in terms of, you know, batteries that are flexible, foldable, uh, those kind of batteries we don't have right now. You know, batteries that you can integrate with your structure, that you can mold with your structure. Um, uh, batteries that are extremely fast charging, we don't have that right now. That's my hope. And then finally, um, batteries that are uh, different in terms of the fact that we stop relying on liquid electrolytes that are messy they make manufacturing very cumbersome. Uh, they're prone to leakage and things like that. If we can replace liquid electrolytes with a completely solid state battery, then I think that would be a huge advance. So, so these are more on the research side, uh, but, but what I'd like to see actually being manufactured in the next five to 10 years is some of the work we've already done on lithium ion battery. Uh, you know, I, I think in terms of, uh, you know, what we need in the future, uh, there's no question that, you know, as, as the size of the population, you know, keeps growing and as people become more and more advanced, right, um, we need more and more energy. So our, uh, you know, the global requirement for energy on the planet is going to keep on increasing ex uh, exponentially. And uh, to meet this, uh, you know, batteries are going to be crucial. And, uh, um, you know, the existing batteries that we have right now uh, they're pretty good, but um, there's a lot of room for improvement. And so, you know, I, I kind of mentioned these four things, right? Better, greener, safer, and cheaper. Um, there is considerable room for improvement in each of these areas. So um, there's a lot of work that needs to go into this. Um, and there's a lot of opportunities, you know, for the next 5, 10, 20 years. This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening.